0: Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melissa Pillman. I am one of the elders and a pastor here at Missio Day Wrigleyville. And we are in a series right now called The Prayers of Jesus. And we've just come out of a series that we called Becoming the Church, where we studied the first part of the book of Acts. And we talked about the marks that we saw in the early church and really pondered ways that we as a community of Jesus want to be marked in the same ways by things like uh, radical hospitality and faithful service and, and generosity, those same marks. And then we started into this series on prayer as a pause in the middle of our study of the book of Acts. And the reason that we're diving deep into prayer is because the early church was the book of Acts is covered in stories of prayer. People reaching out to God faithfully and persistently in prayer. And so in order to study this mark of the church a little deeper, we decided to look to the words of Jesus. What did Jesus do as a person of prayer? What did he teach about prayer? And so today we're in part one of our study of what we call the Lord's Prayer. And this is a part of scripture recorded in two different gospels where Jesus teaches people how to pray. And I actually almost forgot, before I get into that, each week in this series, we also have been doing a different prayer practice. The fact of the matter is that it can be uh, tough to be a person of prayer. Sometimes you could use a little fresh something in your prayer life. And our goal is that each week we could describe a different practice that the church has used, not because some formula is perfect, but because sometimes it's helpful to shake up your prayer practice. So we have cards up front from each week's practice. This week, there is a method called ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's an acronym. And what it is, is it just is, it's not a magic formula. There is no magic formula in prayer. Instead, this is uh, meant to be uh, uh, a movement, a guide to give you movements and a pathway of prayer. Uh, if you're like me, I can get lost on my grocery list or something conversation I had the day before it just helps you get through movement so it's adoration starting with just giving words of adoration to God for who God is and then there's a time of confession where you posture your heart to really be attentive to the spirit if there's anything um, off in your in your heart or in an encounter you had uh, that you need to lay before the throne of grace and then t is thanksgiving we just Speak the things, like take the time to mark the things for which you are thankful and giving credit to God for those things. And then supplication. This is when you petition um, on behalf of others, our world, our city, whatever it is. So uh, grab your prayer card when we come up for um, uh, participating in communion and response later. But I wanted to give us this week's prayer practice. And now, okay, this is where I was getting off before. On the Lord's Prayer. Speaking of no set magic formula. The Lord's Prayer is not a set magic formula. It's something different. You'll notice, we know this, because it's listed in two different Gospels, in Luke and in Matthew, and in both places, as Jesus is teaching on prayer, it, it comes across a little bit different in those two places. And this isn't a variance. This is a really beautiful reminder. Jesus was teaching and walking and talking in so many different settings. He would have taught on prayer many times. So this wasn't two different recordings of a same moment. These are different times, but the same general uh, momentum of prayer is what Jesus was teaching about. So it's not about a mantra. Now, I did teach on week one, and I still believe this. Memorizing the Lord's prayer is an important part of having a prayer sort of at the ready um, when when we're having our prayer life, when we, when we speak the words together, it's, we're joining in with the historical church in speaking these words and praying this prayer. It's beautiful memorized, but it's not a magic mantra. It's not about that. So in Luke 11, when it's recorded, it's, it's seen that Jesus was praying. He was actively praying, and the disciples were witnessing this, and they said, hey, teach us how to pray. And then he goes into the teaching there. Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer actually falls within a longer teaching that we now call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching about all kinds of things. But the general framework is that first, Jesus focuses on the character and mission of God, and then he gets to human needs. Both are important, and we're going to study both in turn. The thing that was on my heart all week as I was thinking about this is, uh, There's something beautiful about the ancient familiarity of the church with the Lord's Prayer, but there's also something that can make that a little bit tricky, right? We can kind of, if we grew up in church at all, say, yeah, I already know that one. I've already heard this part, Melissa. And I know that could be true of a lot of you. Number one, we have to remember some haven't grown up knowing this and having this deep in our head and having a strong opinion on debts versus transgressors and all that stuff. But some people haven't grown up knowing this. But even if you have, let this be a moment where we pause and sit back into something ancient and beautiful and allow the true power of it to, um, to be a richness to us afresh, even if you're familiar with it. It's not a rote prayer, you guys. This is, this is really amazing stuff. I was reading N.T. Wright. It says, we don't yet have the right to say this prayer. Think about that. Without Jesus, it's only through Jesus we have the right. We don't have the right to say this prayer, but it's part of the holy boldness, the almost cheeky celebration of the sheer grace and goodness of the living God that we actually get to say these words as though we really mean them through and through. See, when we say these things, when we declare them, even if our hearts aren't yet postured to believe them or have them be true, like it's forming us. It's forming something in our hearts as we speak this. William Willemann and Stanley Hauerwas. it's a mouthful to say their names. They've written a couple of amazing books together, but that I had to like work on that a couple times this morning before I said it. William and Stanley say this: the Lord's Prayer is like a bomb ticking in the church, waiting to explode and demolish our false gods. When we say this prayer and we mean it, we are coming against things in this culture, false gods false narratives with our words. This prayer has a lot of power. This morning, we are actually gonna be, um, I loved, Emily, was that uh, the message version? Where did Emily, yeah, I love that. Here's what I have to say really quickly about translations. Translations can feel frustrating because there's slightly different words and different translations of the Bible. We intentionally use a couple different translations because some go more word for word, remembering the Bible was not written originally in English. Some go word for word, some go more thought for thought, which is what Emily just read. And this morning I'm actually gonna use the NRSV for the main part of our scripture. I apologize, I actually don't own a physical NRSV Bible, it's on my Amazon wish list, but I don't own it yet. So I'm I'm gonna be reading scripture off of a page, um, but I'm I'm using it for a specific reason because this one goes, uh, this translation goes a little bit more literally word for word, and I'll let you see why in a minute that matters for this moment. But okay, this is now out of the NRSV Matthew 6, starting in verse five. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you're praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. Don't babble, prayer is not for show. That's basically what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't against public prayer. He actually prays publicly. He prays in one, a big public moment before a crowd of 5,000 as he feeds them with the bread. So Jesus prayed publicly, he wasn't against that. There's nothing wrong with praying in a synagogue or in a church, like it's not literally that you only can pray in a closet. That's not what was inherently wrong in what Jesus was teaching here. There's nothing wrong with praying here, praying with friends in homes or anything. Jesus is getting to the heart. These, the people he's talking about, they want to be seen by others, their motive. Jesus always goes to the heart motive, right? Who are you, are you intending to be seen and heard by? Whose affection are you going for? Is it the Father, or is it so you can be seen and praised for your fancy words? So instead of uh, just getting to the, the heart of talking with God like Adam and Eve did talking to God in the garden, right? And how Jesus talked with him, how David spilled his heart out in prayer in the Psalms that we see. Hypocrites are praying to be seen. So it's about the heart of what you're, of what you're going after that he was talking about. Who is your attention on? It's supposed to be about God, not the approval of others. So the definition of Jesus calls a lot of people hypocrites, right? So uh, hypocrisy is when your motives and your actions aren't lining up with each other, right? Here's your action, but your motives are over here. You're looking really pious, but really you're seeking attention and approval. So that's what Jesus is getting after in this. He wants his disciples, they said, teach us to pray. And the first thing he gets at is their integrity. Your integrity is at stake. You're gonna be the ones to take this message forward. It's vital you understand that this is not about uh, the attention and the approval of others. Who is your audience? Your Father, who sees you even in secret, even when no one else can hear and already knows your heart. Don't babble, this is a hard one for me. I happen to like words, if y'all didn't notice. I'm a words person and I can get wordy as a verbal processor, but it's not about that per se. He's contrasting this with a common posture that he must have been seeing where Gentiles would actually use a whole lot of words to a whole lot of gods or use many names for a desired God, literally with the intention of just getting somebody's attention. The gods in the pagan world were were finicky, and so you needed to get them to do something, to motivate them, you thought, to to do something. So there were a lot of words being used. We're actually gonna take, as an example of this, the story from 1 1 Kings 18, and now I actually, this one's an NIV, it's Audrey's NIV, it's very purple. But I'm gonna read this story that gives you an idea of what Jesus is talking against. So in this moment, Elijah is the one prophet of Yahweh remaining in the area. And there are 450 prophets of Baal, who's a pagan god. And they're trying to get their god's attention. And so there's kind of this contest that happens between them. And so listen to this, this thought kind of expresses it. Well, you see, uh, they called on the name of Baal, these prophets, Uh, Oh, I'm sorry, they took two bulls and made two mounds, and they were doing an offering, and it was like, see which God is more pleased. So the, the prophets of Baal went out with their bull. They called on Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he's a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came, and I'll fast forward a little bit. He not only goes around where his bull is to be sacrificed, but he douses the whole thing with water multiple times. And then he cries out to God. They, three times they do this. And Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know you are Lord, uh, you are Lord, you are God, and that you are turning their hearts back to them. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, all, and licked up all the water in the trench. The point is this, it was Elijah's prayer was not long in Babylon. He wasn't running around frantically prophesying. He spoke to God for God's glory to be known, and that was it. And that was all that was needed. Because of course, our God hears us. And so this is the kind of contrasting thing about the length of a prayer. This is what Jesus is, is getting after. We're talking about the one true God, and we, he's contrasting this with the pagan gods who were finicky. So that idea versus a loving father. So then we're gonna go on in this and start into what we call the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the part of the prayer that we're gonna focus on today. First of all, I just wanna point out that there are a lot of similarities between this and a Jewish recited prayer called the Kaddish. Now, a recited prayer, like us reciting the Lord's Prayer, is a beautiful thing in tradition and all of that. So there's a lot of similarities in the language. This would have been Uh, not unfamiliar language to faithful Jewish people, but whereas the Kaddish was looking to God for some forward time of kingdom in-breaking, Jesus was saying this in-breaking is coming now. Remember, Jesus had been teaching that throughout his ministry. The kingdom is here, right? And so he started with this different language and now suddenly we see this here and not yet of the kingdom breaking in. So see some of the similarities in language there. But we're going to just start real slow. We're going to start with the word Father. Because in the Aramaic and Greek, Aramaic would have been how Jesus would have been in speaking originally. Greek is how the Bible was first written, language in which the New Testament was first written. In both of those languages, Father is actually the first word of this prayer. And we're going to pause there for a minute. This is the Son speaking to the Father and inviting us to do the same. This is no small thing. A quick note on gender, Uh, the term father isn't about maleness. Uh, Jesus is male, father and spirit are not gendered. Uh, Scripture also refers to Yahweh father as mother as well. Okay, so this isn't a gendered term, but what it is saying that in Jewish tradition, a father figure would be one who you could trust one with whom you had intimacy, they cared for their children. And so that's what this metaphor is getting to. And it also is the relationship between uh, father and son in the triune God. So uh, this, this is a deeper way that um, the people would have already understood the concept of Yahweh having a father role. So we're gonna get to that a little bit in the Old Testament for just a minute. There was Jewish thought of God as a father, uh, but this prayer addressing God as father was not as known. We don't actually have Jewish records of praying to God as father. Uh, There's a couple of names in the Old Testament. Um, Abiel means God as my father. Joab means Yahweh as father. We hear the psalmists referring to God as a father, loving his children. But the first way and the way that this concept was first known that, that we know of is in Exodus 4. This is when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God says through Moses, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. That's God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh, and it's talking about liberty for the captives. That's what God the Father meant. That's what sonship meant for Israel. So for Israel to call God call God Father was to hold on to that hope of liberty. Slaves were called sons. Slaves were called sons of Yahweh. It was a really big deal. So Jesus now bringing on the new exodus, we're talking again about freedom from bondage. So Israel knew God as Father in that way, but Jesus talks about and to God as Father in a totally different way. Intimately, frequently, passionately, it, that's what this first word brings in. It's something that, it was, a, it was a knowledge, but there's like a heart behind it when Jesus teaches it. Not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity of father, but like a hope. So the son who's been promised through the line of David now says, guys, this is your prayer too. You get to pray this way. Throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus speaks of my father, and then he speaks of your father, and here he says, Our Father, our Father, discipleship have, disciples have this adoptive uh, stance now because of Jesus. Early in the third century, Cyprian of Carthage said this, our prayer is public and common, meaning communal. When we pray, we pray not for one, but for the whole people, because we, the whole people are one. This is a beautiful corporate prayer that we individually pray, our Father, And this is why this is this great act of faith. As N.T. Wright points out, it's not just that cheeky boldness, right, of coming up and saying, hey, Dad, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm needing. Yes, it's cheeky and we're invited to do it, but it's also a real risk. Because what we're in fact saying, please, may I too, God, be formed as an apprentice son like Jesus was. It means signing up for this kingdom that we're praying about, and that is no small thing. We see Jesus praying to his Father and somehow without losing the uniqueness of that relationship, without compromising that at all, he invites us to call out to our Father as well, address God this way and and feel the same intimacy and reverence that we get to see together in this prayer. The next phrase, who art in heaven, Our Father who art in heaven. This is not about geography. This is not about physically locating God in a cloud somewhere or something. That's a wrong view of heaven, by the way. Uh, It means everywhere. Omnipotent, everywhere. The supremacy of God in all things. Perfection, the perfection of God to be in all places. Access to everyone and everywhere. This phrase, again, goes into the reverence part. Our Father, intimacy, who art in heaven, reverence. These two things are so married. And now here's why I wanted to use the NRSV this morning. It keeps hallowed be thy name. Um, Hollow, that's a really weird word. As Nijay Gupta points out, I love this word because you're never gonna say it anywhere else in your life. The uniqueness of it is part of its beauty in this prayer because it's basically an ongoing reminder. God's greater than even our words. Hallowed means set apart, honored, sanctified, to treat it with the highest respect. And it's interesting because the actual verbiage is, hallowed be thy name is basically saying like, not just declaring it, but saying like, God, make it so. God, make your name holy. God, do the things in line with your holiness. It's putting the action actually to God, to to hallow God's name. It's kind of cool. I don't understand it in the verb tense world, but it's a neat thing. It's saying, God, do that thing you do. God, be God. It's holy, it's otherness, it's set apart. Act in a way that glorifies yourself. The next phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here we see a cry out from the heart for the intersection of these two realms, so to speak, the divine with the earthy. This pattern of prayer centers our will to get in line with God's will. That's what we're saying, a longing for God's reign to inbreak into our earthly reality. And that's countercultural, right? In a world that loves comfort and fun and recreation and that stuff's like not bad or anything, but like a God's inbreaking actually is just so much greater because it means justice and mercy and shalom and flourishing. It's not about avoiding this world. It's like serious inbreaking right into the middle of it. It's divine. It's powerful. It's a big deal. The phrase, thy will be done, Jade touched on this last week, but it bears repeating. This is not some write-off, like a concession, but like do what you want anyway. You know, you can kind of make it seem like it, but you know, you get to do whatever you want anyway, so there, there's that. It's a catch-all for everything else. It's not that at all. It's actually saying, make my heart and will submissive to your heart and will. Form me to your will. I want what you want. That's what it's really saying. And the focus is on God's will and kingdom and glory. It's kingdom focused through and through. This prayer can't just be read and said and recited as individual spirituality. It's an in-breaking prayer that we're praying with this. Jesus, the society of God's people, flourishing with Christ as king, that's what it is. New creation, new power, new obedience, new shalom, new justice, all of it. As Christians, we are called, invited, delighted to be postured always toward future hope. There is more to come. And while we wait with anticipation, we are longing for that inbreaking, for all nations to be together, joined together, worshiping God in little moments now until that future glory comes. And here's the deal when praying this prayer, even when we're saying, thy will be done and thy kingdom come, when we're calling for that kingdom to come, it's not about earth being destroyed and heaven taking over. It's not earth destroyed, it's earth reborn. We had our gospel community this past Wednesday, and in it, we started talking about things like heaven. And I confessed to my friends there, when I was a little girl, picture me like a little girl, one of my confessions that I took in prayer to God was like, Jesus, I actually don't want you to come until I'm already dead, because I think it'll be boring. And I told him that, I'm like, I'm sorry, I think I'm supposed to want you to come now, but I don't. I don't. I don't want like I'll have forever to play a harp and sing in a white robe. I had this like disembodied view of heaven, and I didn't know different. So I I pulled this one out for you. Like no shame, that was my view. If you have a disembodied view of heaven. Read this book, this is so good. N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope. It's earth reborn, it's kingdom purposes coming in and repurposing everything that we love and that we cherish and that we enjoy doing and making it flourishing and exuding out shalom and justice and mercy. It's earth reborn. That's what this prayer is for. The whole first section is a prayer that God. Be God. Be God. And that he be seen and honored as such on earth. And even if we have this memorized, we cannot allow this prayer to become rote—that memorized thing you do. That I used to feel, if I'm honest, when we used to like recite the Apostles' Creed in church, I kind of could turn off my brain because we were just reading the words. But there's deep theological things being said and shaping us in this. This cannot be rote prayer reverence, fatherhood and kingdom inbreaking all together inseparable. We rely on this loving, intimate knowledge that God has and this holy reverence. This prayer is actually full of action. Nije Gupta points this out. The actual actions that are going on here is sanctification of the name of God, coming of the kingdom, doing of the will. This is a way more active prayer than I think I ever recognized growing up. It is no rote prayer. And if we pray this way, we need to be ready to live this way in our action as well. I have um, my handy little spiral here. I don't know about all of you. My, uh, my friend who's a counselor, I said when uh, the, the rules were opening up and we were starting to come back, I reached out to a friend who counsels people in trauma. And I said, what should we expect? She's like, we have no idea. We're all learning at the same time coming out of a pandemic, but I can tell you this, nobody had coping mechanisms for a worldwide pandemic. We all reached into our bag and grabbed whatever we could find to cope. And that's the truth. I turned really highly tactile during COVID. I baked a ton of bread. I like needed to knead the dough. I bought a weighted blanket. I just met a weighted blanket and I was like, yes, I need to feel that. I don't know, it was weird. Sometimes when I get stressed out, Andy, would go sit with me in the front yard. And I had to just sit in the grass. It might be weird, but my friend said, that's okay. That's what I grabbed out of my bag. I'm just being honest. So location matters to me right now. And as I was thinking like, God, this can be such a rote prayer. What can I possibly say to excite our hearts to such old familiar words. And I have the honor of working from this building sometimes. And so since place matters to me, I've started writing a lot of my prayers and they don't go in order and my thoughts because I, that pen and paper matter right now. And I came into this, this sacred space and I was alone and it was silent and it was still. And I sat in here for about an hour and I just prayed. And I listened and I just dwelt on the fact that there's intimacy and reverence together in this prayer and for this church. So I was going through this part of the prayer and I was just like writing and, and circling and realizing, like, this is about your name, your kingdom, your will. This is all about you, God. I get to bring my full self before you, but at the end of the day, I want, we want what you want. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are greater than our thoughts. Conform our will to yours. Do this work. Your kingdom, I wanna be where your kingdom breaks in. For sure, that's where I wanna be. For sure, I wanna be a part of that happening. Holy Spirit, help me know how. I wanna be in places where heavenly shalom, justice, and mercy are in breaking in, redemptive moments. We wanna be a part of that here as a church. There is nothing rote about saying this prayer. And remember, the word amen means yes and may it be so. It's a stamp, not a sign off. It's an exclamation point that says yes when we are praying this prayer. As I was sitting here and personalizing it, you know the moment that I thought of was that moment of intimacy and reverence between Moses and God. You might remember the story where where Moses would go into the tent of the meeting and talk with God, pray. Prayer, that's what prayer is, talking and listening. That's it. Pray with God, talk with God like like a man would to a friend face to face. In the tent of the meeting with the Shekinah glory of Yahweh God radiating so much that Moses would come out and his own face would radiate as well because he'd been in the presence of God. And as we sit with this prayer, I invite you to do the same. Sit with just this portion, with your pen or just with whatever your, your baked bread, whatever your coping mechanism is. And as we go through this season, pray for this inbreaking, for our will as a church to be in line with God's will. And here's, what I, here's where I came as I ended this time of prayer with God. When we look at as on earth as it is in heaven, I was thinking how earth right now feels to me. It feels gritty and expectant and super messy and hopeful and discouraging and I get back to gritty. I just keep thinking of that word. But then as it is in heaven, until that comes in full, you guys, we as the church, as the community together, we get to do this messy, reverent thing that we do together. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a gift. Sit in this gift and don't allow the reverence or the intimacy to get messed up. This is silly, but I thought of that first time that I had salted caramel. Like salty and sweet together, my mind was blown. Like let it just sit there like salted caramel. We get to have intimacy and reverence together. Let that just blow your mind and sit and dwell in both. It's no rote magic formula. This is Jesus reminding us, start here in your prayer start with intimacy and reverence your god who knows you and knows your needs is so excited to hear from you father god you are so holy hallowed be your name we gather here in the in the name of your son jesus we thank you that you've called us to your heart holy spirit light up in us that which you have Shed away any of my words that were confusing and bring forward the nugget for us individually and corporately that you would have us hold on to. Holy Spirit, you are in this place with us as we are gathered in uh, your name, God. Do this work, light our hearts and bring us closer and closer to your throne room of grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodeschicago.com.